Thank you. John chapter 19 is where we are. Um, and uh, we left off right around verse 26. So where we are is we've come through in the gospel of John, the entire ministry of the Lord Jesus on planet earth. We have come through seven trials uh, for Jesus. Three were um, religious with the Pharisees. Three were uh, civil trials with Pontius Pilate, with Herod, and back to Pontius Pilate. The seventh trial is when Pilate says to the people, who do you want me to release, Barabbas or Jesus? They choose Jesus, having been prompted by the um, religious leaders who hate and are jealous of Jesus. One of the Gospels mentions that Pilate knew that the reason the Jews had turned him over to try to get him crucified was that they were jealous of his popularity, his power, and the spirit that he had that they obviously didn't. Now we've come through the uh, trials of Jesus, and we are um, uh, at the cross. They have divided his garments. Uh, John MacArthur commented that in the last uh, 24 hours, I don't want to get the number wrong. I might have to wait and read it in the notes. But in the last 24 hours of his life, Jesus fulfills a couple dozen prophecies from the Old Testament, just in the last 24 hours. The fact that they gamble for his clothing is a fulfillment of prophecy, for example. Anyway, let's pick it up in verse uh, 20. Uh, well, let's see. Um, let's pick it up in verse 25. Those of you that are here nice and loud, say amen. amen. Good one. And those of you online, wave or say amen, even though I can't hear you. Beautiful. Um, okay. Verse. So chapter 19 of John, verse 25. Um, he's on the cross. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. We, we covered that verse last week, but I just want to give you the flavor that we're at the beginning of the crucifixion. John does not go into the detail the other gospels do with regard to the crucifixion and all that goes on. It's, very, it's much more brief in the gospel of John. He's anxious to get to the best news of all, which is the resurrection. So there's the women um, standing with him. He doesn't name Mary, the Virgin Mary. He just calls her his mother. He's the only one that mentions that she, she is at the cross. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't even mention that. So that anybody that's worshiping Mary or praying to Mary ought to take note. She's not even mentioned in the other three gospels as being at the cross, only in John. Three of the four women he mentions, Mary, his mother's sister, is there. Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. You notice Mary, 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 three out of four. It's interesting. Mary is a is a uh, like Maria, right? Uh, Mar Mary is a, fr a form of the Hebrew name Miriam, which means bitterness. Interestingly enough, and there's great bitterness going on as they're watching. If you've had a child that's even been sick, you know how hard it is. Can you imagine what's going through Mary's mind and heart um, when she had had the baby? It was predicted, remember, that a sword would pierce her heart. And I think this is it, right? Watching her son. He's been beaten twice, whipped um, twice, two times, um, spit upon, mocked. He's a mess. If you saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ, which uh, is almost hard to look at, right? Um, verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother there, 
This is an incident nobody else reports. Remember, John writes his gospel much later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and tells his version of the story, what he remembers, especially including things the other three didn't. Remember, none of the other apostles that we know of are there, only John. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom Jesus loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, he said, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took him into his home. John never refers to himself by name. Almost every scholar thinks this is the apostle John. Okay, so what's going on here? Jesus sees his mother there, and it says in the other gospels that they're a ways off. They're not right next to the cross, but he sees them, and he's able to speak to them, and he is sort of committing his mother to the care of John. We know from the other gospels that Jesus had, or I should say it this way, Joseph and Mary had other children, four sons, Joseph, Judas, Simon, um, and James. So he's got four half-brothers. They show up in John chapter 7, and they don't believe. In the book of Acts, they show up, and they do. Uh, and they're praying with the disciples along with Mary in the book of Acts. That's the last time Mary's mentioned, by the way. So why does Jesus do this? Number one, this is all about the fact that there is a bond between believers that is, in a sense, stronger than the biological bond of blood, relatives, biologically related people, sisters, brothers, husbands, wives, in some cases, um, certainly children and grandparents and all that. Everybody that I've talked to that's a Christian can attest to the fact that there are some Christians Christians that they're closer to than they are blood relatives, especially the ones that don't believe. So Jesus knows his brothers don't believe. His mother probably does, but probably has her share of questions as well, right? He commits her to John, and John takes her into his home. He could have commissioned him to one of the other brothers, but they didn't believe. They will shortly, within a month or two, uh, so for now, he says to John, woman, uh, uh, sorry, to his mother first, woman, behold, or here is your son. This sounds much more harsh in English than it is. If I said to you, woman, it sounds kind of like, whoa, he's angry. It's very affectionate and it's very warm for him to say that. Um, he is in unbelievable pain as he's saying this. And who does he care about? The people around him. So he cares about his mother and commits her to um, John. Here is your son. And to the disciple, meaning John, here is your mother. Treat him like a mother. He, why John? Well, he's, first of all, he's the only one there, right? But secondly, if you know the story of what happens after the book of Acts, John's the only disciple, the only apostle that dies a natural death dies extremely old. He's writing this in the 90s of the first century. Jesus dies, scholars disagree, 33 AD, 30 AD. I'm talking in the neighborhood of 60 years later. If John's 20 then, he's 80, 80 something maybe now uh, when he's writing this and he writes Revelation as well. He knows that he's going to outlive his brothers. Jesus remembers the oldest brother. The brothers are half-brothers. 
He's got sisters as well. They're not named or mentioned, but they're in the gospel of Matthew spoken of. Um, John, um, yeah, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and also sisters. Yeah, that's Matthew 13. Um, the kingdom relationships are in a lot of ways deeper. And may I say, kingdom relationships, as opposed to unbelievers, even if they're your sister or your mom or your child, last infinitely longer, right? You guys are stuck with me forever, right? And vice versa. Um, uh, verse 28, parenthetically, before we read verse 28, let me tell you what John doesn't include. I don't usually do this, but it's important because there's a lot of key things. At this time, he's on the cross. Um, time marker. It is the day before Passover. It's Friday. It's the day that the rabbis are slaughtering lambs by the hundreds of thousands. A few decades later, Josephus, they took a census, not of the people, but of the lambs killed, and it was a little over 250,000 lambs. Keep in mind, that's one for each family. So that lamb might represent four people, eight people, 10 people, right? All, it's a bloody holiday. It's about to end because the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is dying on the cross. At the same time, they're slaughtering those lambs. Jesus is convicted at 6 a.m. roughly that morning when you put all the gospels together by um, Pilate. And he finally agrees after six times saying, I find no guilt in this man. The Jews pressure him. He says, okay, go ahead and crucify him. It's around 6 a.m., very early in the day. Um, 9 a.m., after the whipping and the journey to the where he's going to be crucified, Golgotha or Calvary, um, he uh, is on the cross about 9 a.m. Okay, Saturday, um, 12 noon, the other gospels mention Matthew, Mark, and Luke, darkness over the land, supernatural darkness. Scholars that know the moon sequences, and that's how Passover is determined with moons, will tell you this is not, the darkness is not an eclipse, impossible when it occurred. So what are you saying? I'm saying it's a supernatural darkness. Darkness is judgment in the Bible. So are earthquakes can speak of judgment. There's an earthquake. John doesn't mention the darkness. John doesn't mention the earthquake. Darkness starts at noon and goes to three. Shortly after 3 p.m., he dies. Just trying to give you a little time markers there. John doesn't mention Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you were here last week, you know, we read pretty much all of Psalm 22, which begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you read it, it's a Psalm written as if the writer, which is David, is writing in the first, first person as if somebody being crucified. They gamble for his clothing in that, uh, in that Psalm. He, they pierce his hands and his feet. Amazingly, this is written before Psalm 22 was, um, about 700 years before this, before crucifixion was even invented by the Persians. He doesn't mention, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turning his back on him because he's bearing all the sin, all the guilt of uh, everyone. He omits the jeering and the taunting from the people that are watching. He omits the jeering, and you might, it might surprise you to hear this, 
and the ridicule from both thieves on either side of him. Both. One changes his mind, remember, and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember all that? Um, that's a whole study right there. We won't do that. But he omits that. He omits the veil in the temple being torn in half. We talked about that last week and a little bit the week uh, before we start, before we took our break uh, in December. John doesn't mention the veil tearing in the temple. He doesn't mention the earthquake that occurs. The weirdest one of all is Matthew 27, 52 and 53. You don't need to turn there. Only Matthew reports that when there's that earthquake and uh, Jesus is dying on the cross, this is bizarre. Don't ask me to explain it. Matthew says that some came out of their graves. I don't mean Jesus. This is when he's dying. There's no resurrection yet. Some people came out of their graves and appeared to people in the city. Imagine that. Oh, Uncle Harry died 11 years ago. He was a real believer and looking forward to the Messiah. And I'm back kind of thing. Pretty strange. Um, there are seven. Uh, we'll just briefly go over this because you just heard. John only mentions a few of the things Jesus says from the cross. There are a total of seven things he says. Luke 23, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, if you'd been beaten twice, whipped a bunch of times, spit upon, and you were in a great deal of pain, bleeding out, dehydrated, would you say, Father, forgive them. I'd have a few other choice words probably, but that's my flesh, right? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And they didn't. They're killing the son of God. Are they still blamable, culpable? Absolutely. The next thing he says is Luke 23, 43. He tells the thief on the cross, and we're going to talk more about this later, so I'm just going to mention it now. He tells the thief on the cross, truly, truly, I tell you, today, you will be with me, where class? In paradise. That'll come back later. I'll explain why when we get there. He says, woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. In John 19, we just read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's in all th the other uh, two gospels, Matthew and Mark. He says in John uh, 19, further in this chapter, I thirst. That's, we'll talk about that when we get there. And then he says, it is finished. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, Matthew and Luke conclude his life with the words, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. And he gives up his spirit. We'll talk about that as well. I just wanted to go through those with you. Um, so verse 28, later, see, John skips all that stuff we talked about and a lot of other stuff. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished or completed, verse 28, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled. He's very conscious of Old Testament prophecy, and he's got a little mental checklist. Pierced hands of feet, check this, check, okay, that. They mocked me. Um, he, there's one more prophecy. So he says, so that the scripture would be fulfilled, he says, verse 28, I am thirsty. Well, first of all, it's understandable, right? It's not like they're giving him water and food to drink, food to eat and water to drink. Um, he has not slept all night. He's lost a lot of blood, normal to be dry, right? Uh, he's very, very thirsty. 
Earlier in Mark 15, they offer him a drug on a spear. Do you remember? It's a numbing thing to take the pain away. He tastes it and doesn't drink it. I, I want to feel all the pain. I'm taking her pain and my pain and his pain, right? But this is different. This is um, basically cheap wine. We'll talk about that in a second. But keep your finger here um, and go to Psalm 69. By the way, Psalm 22 talks about him being thirsty. Go to Psalm 69. So Psalms is roughly in the middle of the Bible. If you get in the middle of your Bible and you're in Isaiah or somewhere, take a left or the Proverbs. Psalm 69. <laughs> there we are. Uh, and verse 21, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Jesus, who knows the whole Testament by heart, whole Old Testament by heart, knows this has to be fulfilled. It was written hundreds of years before, but it's going to come true. So they're going to put gall in his food and give him vinegar for his thirst. While you're there in Psalm 69, I can't resist reading verse 20. Scorn, and he certainly has been scorned. See the verse before it? Scorn, disgraced, and shamed. Verse 20, scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none for comforters, but I found none. Scorn has broken my heart. There are a lot of Bible scholars. There are even physicians who think that Jesus died of a heart that literally burst from having all of that shame, all of that guilt. We said last week, they did not crucify crucifixion victim, victims with the little loincloth that you've seen. Looks like a little pair of shorts. They crucified them absolutely naked to make the shame maximum, if you will. Um, okay, go back to John 19. So he knows everything's been fulfilled, fulfilled and finished. But so that the last scripture would be fulfilled, he says, I am thirsty. Verse 29, a jar of wine vinegar was there. This is cheap kind of sour wine. They soaked a sponge with it, in it, sorry, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. Okay, hyssop, if you said hyssop to a Jew, they would think, oh yeah, it's that weed that you use to sprinkle, according to the Old Testament, the blood of the sacrificed lamb on the doorposts and the lintels of your door to protect your house from the angel of death. They use hyssop to give him the wine. Is there a connection there? Probably, but I won't sell it too hard. Um, so this is very diluted wine. Why does he do this? Because it's predicted, because he is human, fully God, fully man. He does it also because he's about to announce a couple things and his throat is dry. Simple as that. Um, so they lifted it to Jesus's lips. Verse 30, when he had received the drink, he's taken the drink. They take that plant, hyssop plant away. He says, it is finished. There are different translations, but that's the majority translation. In Greek, this is one word. Some of you know it, right? Tetelestai. Have you heard that word? This is a word that means it is finished. What's your point, Joe? They have found ancient papyri, 
which are um, documents, paper basically, um, made from the papyrus plant that are, that are debts. Now let's say that I owed Jeff $1,000, okay? And he's, he's saying, pay me now. Like, and I paid him off $100 here and there. And eventually um, he has the document. And eventually I say, this is the last hundred. I've paid you in full. And he shakes my hand and he says, yes, you have. I have a right to say, may I see the document? And would you please write on it one word? Guess what the word is? Tetelestai. It means paid in full. The matter of this debt is finished. What does that have to do with anything? Just this. He's, Jesus is paying a tab. He's paying a huge debt, not of money, the debt toward, toward God because of all the sin of the world. Every sin. Look, when David sins, do you remember what he says? He sins against Bathsheba, against uh, Uriah. Remember? He sins, and yet he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Every sin, although I may sin against her or you or, him, or her or him, every sin is an affront against God by breaking his law. Jesus is paying for the sins of the world. Yes, there's tremendous pain. We already talked about the bleeding and the, the tremendous searing pain from the nails in the hands. They would consider the wrists hands uh, and the feet. There's the tremendous effort it takes to take a breath and all of that tremendous pain from the crown of thorns. All of that being said, the real pain Jesus is dreading in the garden of Gethsemane is not the physical pain. It's the spiritual pain of being um, excluded from, blocked from his father, which has had not been the case from all eternity past. Uh, Jesus had no beginning. So he raises it to his lips. When he drinks it, he says, Tetelestai, it is finished. The debt has been paid. You say, in full? In full. Why do I mention that? Because there's people that think that, no, there's something more that needs to be done. In Catholicism, there's a thing called the sacrifice of the mass. No more sacrifices needed. Read the book of Hebrews. It says that repeatedly. Okay. So he says, it is finished. The debt has been paid a hundred percent. Some have asked, whose debt is he paying? And I'll, to be honest, there's scholars that disagree about this. Okay. I, I, I read John 3.16, which says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, wait, who did he love? The world. I believe that he's dying for the sins of the entire world. Every human being, every single sin. Wait, you mean just believers, don't you? I do not. I believe, listen, well, then everybody's saved. No. I believe the sacrifice of Jesus Christ being the sinless, perfect lamb of God is sufficient to pay for the sins of the entire world. But it is efficacious or effective only for those who believe. Do you understand? Much like it would be if I wrote every human being on planet earth, a check for a million dollars. Don't worry, I don't have the money. But if I did, let's just say, and I wrote everybody a check and everybody thought it was funny and threw it away, but there were 15 of you or so that went, 
can't hurt. I'm going to the bank and see if my balance increases by a million dollars. What do you know? My balance is a million four hundred and sixty-one dollars and eighty cents now. That million-dollar check was good for everybody, but only the ones that believed it got the benefit. Do you see the difference? So it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And believe it or not, we're not going to go there yet because we got to talk about it is finished some more. Here's why. There are, I'm going to step on some toes here. I just want to warn you. Probably none of you, but maybe. There are all kinds of people with huge ministries in Christianity who teach. Listen, I'm going to quote them if you don't believe me because I want to warn you about them. They teach Jesus is wrong. It's not finished. Jesus paid for our sins, not on the cross. He paid for our sins for three days when he was tortured and suffered in hell, when the demons and the devil tortured him. You say, oh, come on. Is that in the Bible? No unless you count the book of illusions, chapter four. Uh, just kidding. Okay. So first of all, who says this? Joel Osteen, Joyce Myers, Kenneth Hagan, Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Fred, Frederick Price, Benny Hinn, Paul and Jan Crouch, Bill Johnson of Bethel. There are dozens of others. Those are the big names. You say, oh yeah? Um, well, prove it. Okay. I will. Now, this is going to make your hair curl. Do you think that the punishment for our sin was to die on the cross? If that were the case, the two thieves could have paid your price. No, the punishment was to go to hell itself and to serve time in hell separated from God. Satan and all the demons of hell thought they had him bound and they threw a net over Jesus and they dragged him down to the very pit of hell itself to serve our sentence. Frederick Price, guy has a huge TV and radio ministry. Joel Osteen. I was going to imitate him, but I won't with the blinking and the Southern accent. The, and all the, he's always smiling. The Bible indicates that for three days, Jesus went into the very depths of hell, right into the enemy's own territory. He did battle with Satan face to face. Can you imagine what a showdown that was? No, I can't because it's not in the Bible. It wasn't a physical death on the cross. It paid the price for sin. Anybody can do that. Really? The lamb of God had to be a lamb when you're sacrificing a lamb had to be without blemish. What does that mean for a person? It means could Adam or Ken or Joe pay for your sins? Sure. As long as we're sinless, forget it, right? Don't make me start counting my sins. Jesus was the sinless lamb of God without blemish. By the way, in the old Testament said no bone of his will be broken. Well, we'll talk about that in a second. I'm going to keep moving. Kenneth Copeland, when Jesus cried, it is finished. He was not speaking of the plan of redemption. There were still three days and nights to go through before he went to the throne. Uh, Jesus' death on the cross was only the beginning. What does Jesus say? It is begun, finished. Hello. Kenneth Copeland, Jesus went to hell to free mankind from the penalty of Adam's high treason treason. When his blood poured out, it did not atone. That goes against Paul, Peter, John, the whole New Testament. Jesus spent three horrible days and nights in the bowels of this earth, getting back for you and me, our own rights with God. 
Joyce Meyer, there is no hope of anyone. By the way, if you get the notes emailed to you, you'll see all these quotes, even with the date they said it. You can look it up. There's no hope. Listen to this. There's no hope of anyone going to heaven unless they believe this truth that I'm presenting. You cannot go to heaven unless you believe with all your heart that Jesus took your place in hell. Joyce Meyer. Jesus said, it is finished. And all he meant was the old covenant. The job he was doing was just getting started. He really did the job for three days and three nights he was in hell. That's where the job was done. He paid the price in hell, Joyce Meyer. I could go on and on and on. I won't do it. But the question is, are they right? No. It's so clear that they're wrong. Listen. Okay, let's say they're right. Wouldn't Jesus have said to the thief on the cross, truly, truly, I tell you, you may be in paradise today, but I'm going to hell. What does he say? <laughs> right? What does he say? Truly, truly, I tell you, you, thief on the cross who just received Christ as Savior, will be with me where? In paradise. Okay, that's number one. Number two, it is finished. Oh, that should be clear enough without that first one, right? Here's the third one. He's about to die. Last thing he says, Satan, into thy hands I commit my spirit, right? For three days? No. Father, into your hands. Be careful who you listen to. Test everything, including my whatever I say or your pastor says or anybody on the radio or TV with the word of God. If it doesn't line up, you got to throw it out. So, okay. I get a little fired up. Can you tell? Let's keep rolling. Um, I just hate when people change what's in the Bible. It's so clear. It's finished. Praise God. It's finished. I don't have to do any sacrifices on my own. And they wouldn't mount to a, amount to a hill of beans anyway. It is finished. With that, this is important. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What does that mean? It means he died. But it doesn't say he died for a reason. And I want, I want to talk about that. You may you think, boy, he's really splitting hairs. No, I'm really not. Listen, Jesus did not die because of the whipping or the nails or the bleeding out or the shock that he was in. Um, he chose the moment when he died and he gave up his spirit meaning he chose the point and said, I'm done. Remember, the other two thieves on the cross, they're going to come check in a while. They're still alive. He is a very healthy 30-something carpenter. You ever see a wimpy carpenter? I haven't. He's in shape. He's strong. He dies very early. Pilate is surprised he was already dead. They check him, and he's definitely dead. We'll talk about that as well. Um, so this is a, uh, him bowing his head and giving up his own spirit. I want to look at a few Bible verses that explain this John 10, 15, Jesus talking, I lay down my life for my, for the sheep. I have the power to lay it down verse 17 and the power to take it up again. He's already talking about resurrection. That's several chapters ago. John 12, unless a grain of wheat dies, 
uh, it bears no fruit. But if it dies and goes into the earth, it bears much fruit. For this purpose, I came. John 2. Do you remember? He's arguing with the Pharisees. He says, destroy this temple. And in three days, listen, I will raise it up. He is in control, even as he's on the cross, even as he's dying, even as he's rising from the dead. So um, Jesus chooses the moment when he's going to die. Verse 31. So Jesus is on the cross, hanging there, but he's dead. Verse 31, now it was the day of preparation. That's Friday, the day before the high Sabbath, which is a Sabbath that occurs during the Passover holiday. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. That's the reason. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. To make death happen faster, they would break the legs And you needed to push on your legs to push yourself up to be able to take a breath. If you can't do that, if they break your legs, can you imagine somebody breaking your legs with a huge mallet or an iron bar? I can't even. Anyway, so what's going on here? Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 to 23. In fact, let's turn there real fast. Go to Deuteronomy way back in the beginning of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy. And what chapter did I say? 20, I'm not even listening. 21, Deuteronomy 21, one of the first five books of the Bible. So it's the law. Deuteronomy 21, look at, I want you to see this, 22 and 23. If a man is guilty of a capital offense, if a man guilty of a capital offense, I'm in 21, 22 of Deuteronomy, is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. They have to take it down for another reason. It would desecrate and make unclean the whole Sabbath, uh, the whole um, Passover celebration, okay? They have to take the body down. The problem is the Sabbath starts at six at night, roughly, okay? Darkness. On Friday, yes. The Jews reckoned a day starting at sundown. And going to the next sundown. This day, Friday, is going to end for the Jews at six o'clock. He's dead at three. They rush over to try to get the body taken down because you can't do it after 6 p.m. Why? Can't do any work on the Sabbath. Taking down the body would be work. Okay. So, oh, there it is. In the last 24 hours of Jesus's life, he fulfilled 28 Old Testament prophecies. Um, so the, the bodies will defile the land if they leave them up there. Usually the bodies were left on the cross for a while to let wild animals, birds peck at them. It was grotesque. Remember that crucifixion was a deterrent for crime. The Romans saying, you want to end up like that? You better stay in line, right? Very public place. Usually where two highways met or one highway met a main highway met. Um, so Verse 22, the soldiers, that's the crew we talked about last week. There are four that are the executioners who handle 
um, crucifixion. They are professional in being killers. Then there was a centurion, a fifth person, who was the head guy. The law of Rome said, if you crucify somebody and you are the, no worries, and you are the centurion, if you certify the guy is dead and he's not, you die. So they were very, very careful about making sure each victim was dead. So verse 32, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus, then those of the other. One of those is the penitent thief is what he's called. The guy that said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember that? Before that, if you remember, he yells across to the first guy who's still ridiculing Jesus. And he says, the penitent thief, the one who's saved says, be quiet. We're getting what we deserve. That's the confession of I'm a sinner. I need a savior. This is just punishment for me. Listen, but this man pointing to Jesus, not pointing, but gesturing has done nothing wrong. What's that doctrinally? The sinless lamb of God. The guy's got some good theology for a thief on a cross, right? Right. Then he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Think of the faith it took for that. The word king is above him in three languages, right? This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Three languages, Aramaic, Greek, and, and um, Latin. Does he look like a king? He's all bloody. He's naked. He's all swollen. And it's a mess. And yet in faith, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Truly, truly, I tell you, this day you will be with me in hell suffering in paradise. Beautiful. That's grace. You may say, wait a minute, this guy lived a sinful life. His, let's say he's 40 years old. 40 years of sin, five minutes of faith, and he's in? You bet. You bet. Have you talked to someone who's dying and they're not saved? Listen, it's never hopeless. Even in a coma, we've talked to people. My friend Dave was planning to talk to his wife, his dad, who was kind of in and out of a coma. And thank God he got to talk to him while he was awake before he died, talk to him about Jesus. Um, so they break the legs of these guys. The, guy, the penitent thief has some major pain, right? But he knows where he's going. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. So uh, we talked about that. Okay. They broke the legs of both of them. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Now, scripture-wise, Old Testament says that the Messiah cannot have any broken bones. Isn't that interesting? What's the normal way that Jews killed somebody of capital punishment? Stoning, broken bones. They're not little stones, right? Big, broken ribs. Right, your head is what they would aim for. He can't have any broken bones to fulfill scripture. And there's another picture of the Messiah before that. What's that? When God institutes the Passover and tells Moses, he tells them one lamb per family. Don't give me the one with one eye and three legs. I want the one without blemish, the good one. And the whole process, don't break the lamb's bones. None of them. All a picture of Jesus. Pretty cool. So um, Jesus's bones are not 
uh, broken. But we've got verse 34. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus aside with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. If you can picture Jesus up on the cross. By the way, this week I did a lot of reading about this. You usually see in movies, do you not? Jesus is up on the cross. You know, maybe his feet are six feet off the ground. Right? You ever see that? He, his head is way up there, right? There actually were a lot lower than that. They're still raised up, lifted up. He talks about that, but they're not that high up. A soldier coming up with a spear would still have to reach up to some extent, probably going underneath the rib cage from the lower stomach area and going right into the heart. Around the heart, now we're going to get an anatomy lesson. Around the heart is the pericardium, which is a sack of water, okay? For a number of reasons I won't go into. God designed the human body, amen? If you stuck a spear up there, shortly after death, you would get water from the pericardium sac and then right into the heart, a mixture of blood and water. Pretty interesting. If he wasn't dead, he's dead now, but he was. Um, does the soldier do this to make sure he's dead? Maybe. Maybe it's just cruelty. Um, I'm not sure. Um, okay. Now, first of all, this what was popular was docetism and Gnosticism at the time John is writing. This was a belief that Jesus really was the son of God, but wasn't really a man. He looked like a man, talked like a man, wasn't really human. He just appeared to have a human body. John wants you to know he was human. He thirsted, he got tired, he slept, he bled like a man because he was a man. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is... Um, I'm not going to sell this too hard. Blood and water. Is there any significance to that? The sacrifice that the priests did involved the shedding of blood and the washing of water. Is that what's meant here? Maybe. Um, let's see. Some say, this is interesting. Again, I won't sell it that hard. There was um, an amazing thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. Not the fall of Adam and Eve before that. Adam's alone, do you remember? And God brings him the horses and the cows and the chickens and the giraffes, and he names each one. And there's really not a good companion for me. Must not have been any golden retrievers. Anyway, so, so God puts Adam, listen, to sleep. And out of his side, he takes a rib and makes Eve. Out of Adam's side comes the rest of humanity. In a sense, the birth of humanity other than Adam. You with me? Out of Jesus' side, the blood and the water confirming he's dead, comes the birth of the church. You, me. Kind of cool. Jesus' side, the second Adam he's called in Romans and um, somewhere else in the New Testament I can't think of. Um, okay, so I won't sell that one too hard, like I said. Um, now, the next verses are really interesting. To this point, it's been narrative. This happened, and then this happened, and then he said this, and then this happened. Verse 35, the man who saw it has given testimony. John means himself, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may 
believe. That's the purpose in writing this book and telling the story. It's not once upon a time there was. This is serious stuff. I'm telling you this so that you'll believe. I'm an eyewitness, John is saying. I saw it. I know it's true. By the way, he's the only apostle that can say that. The other 10, Judas is dead. The other 10 are wimping out in the upper room going, I hope they don't find us up here. John's there risking his life in a sense. Verse 36, these things happened. Now he's going to name a couple of scriptures from the Old Testament so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now he's quoting um, Psalm 34, 20, but it's also Exodus 12 and Numbers 9, which talks about the lamb and a Passover uh, sacrifice. You, you're not supposed to break the bones. Um, Peter and Paul, by the way, in first Corinthians and in first Peter speak of Jesus as our Passover lamb, making that connection. So, um, not one of his bones is broken is the Psalm 34 passage. Um, and verse 37, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. I know we went there last week, I can't resist going there again. Go to Zechariah 12. You say, where the heck is that? Okay, take a left, go through the whole New Testament, Matthew, and then you see, you get into the Old Testament and you have Malachi. Do you see Malachi right next to Matthew? Take a left from Malachi, second last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 12. I know we went here last week. We'll do this and then we'll take our two-minute break because we're late. Zechariah 12, verse 10. This is God talking, okay? You know that from earlier in the chapter. It's the Lord. Watch what he says. Verse 10, Zechariah 12, 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that's the Jews, a spirit of grace, key word in the New Testament, and supplication, which is prayer. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. There'll be great weeping and all that. Listen, that verse, God's talking and he says, they, the Jews, one day will look on me, the one they have pierced, hands and feet, and mourn for him. They will realize, oh no, we missed it. We've been wrong. In the end times, the Jews in huge numbers will come to faith in Jesus. Some already have. More will be coming. Let's take our two-minute break. I'm just going to turn my screen off for two minutes. We'll be right back. This gives you a chance to stretch your aging body. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. I hope you stretched and you're now wide awake. Are you still awake? Say amen. 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 Good. And you guys on Zoom? Great. I see you. All right. Um, we're back. Jesus has been on the cross. He has died completely for you and me. Okay. It is not in any way for himself. He's doing this for those who will believe. If you recount every sin you've ever committed and the guilt that you've racked up, some of you are shaking your heads. I don't even want to think about it. All the guilt you and I have racked up, Imagine that you're on death row and they're about to kill you. Firing squad, gas chamber, electric chair, beheading, guillotine. 
and someone says, I'll take her place. I'll take his place. Would you be grateful? Would you feel like I owe this person everything? You'd almost think this is almost crazy kind of love in a good way, right? Not crazy, beautiful. It's all for you and I. Um, okay, um, I've got so many notes here. Um, so the soldiers unknowingly fulfill prophecy by not breaking Jesus's legs. Um, amazing that he quotes, they'll look on me, the one they've pierced. But Jews reading that would have recognized, yeah, that's Old Testament. That's incredible that it happened just that way. Um, let's see. Yeah, we talked about that. Verse 38. Later, keep in mind, the body's still on the cross. Nobody dares take it down. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Okay, let's talk about Joe. Joseph of Arimathea only appears at the end of Jesus's life, after he's dead. What we learn is he was a closet Christian. I believe, and I'm not telling anybody. Why? Because he was a Sadducee. He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, sort of a cross between the Senate and the, and the uh, Supreme Court of Israel. High prestige. He's extremely wealthy. People nod their heads to him in the street and show him great respect. If he comes out and says, I believe in this Jesus guy. He's going to lose face, position, maybe money, maybe have to leave town. It's too much of a price to pay. Wait, how much of a price did Jesus pay for him? But before we're too hard on him, he does come through. And in a much more risky way. Jesus is a victim of capital punishment or so it seems, right? For Joseph of Arimathea to go to Pilate and say, I'd like his body, is he's risking, oh, you're one of his supporters? Get another cross ready, Harry, and one for Nicodemus too. Oh, no, 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 never mind, right? It's very risky for him to do this, very public. Secretly, why? He fears the Jewish leaders, pure pressure. The world puts that on us, doesn't it? You're not a Christian, are you? Come on, you believe in evolution, don't you? You don't believe that outdated old book called the Bible, do you? Well, yeah, it's the best-selling book in the world, and yes, I do. God wrote every word. Okay, so he's a disciple, but secretly, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. I want you to notice it says he took the body away. Joseph's got servants. I'll tell you right now, he's wealthy. He could have got three or four servants, go to Pilate and ask for the body and take it down and let me know when you get it down. It sounds like he and Nicodemus, another wealthy uh, uh, Sanhedrin member, do this themselves. Don't miss the fact the body is gross. I'm sorry. It's bloody. It's a mess. They got to pull the nails out. They got to take him down. It's dirty. It's gross. He's doing it. 
He's fulfilling prophecy. Do you remember last week we read Isaiah 53, which says an astounding thing. Whoever this Messiah guy is, he's got to die with wicked men, but he's also got to be in his death in a rich man's grave. Try that. There are no rich apostles, Peter, James, John, Andrew. They're not putting together their money going, we'll get them a nice grave. There's no time anyway. Joseph comes and with him, verse 39, takes the body down, accompanied by Nicodemus. Do you remember him? Chapter three, comes to him at night so nobody will see him and says, we know you're a teacher sent from God. And Jesus doesn't even listen to what he says. He says, truly, I tell you, you must be born again. You're a Pharisee. You think by the law, I'm going to keep all these ceremonial washings. I'm only going to eat kosher food, make all the right sacrifices, say all the right prayers. Good luck with that. It's a covering for sin. It's not, you'll never be free of it unless you have a savior. Truly, I say to you, you must be born again. That's Nicodemus. The man who earlier had visited Jesus, verse 39, at night, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds. Some, some translations have 100. When you do the translation and the difference in what they call the pound and what we do, it's 65 to 75 pounds. You say, well, how much is that? You ever lift a 60-pound bag of cement? And ladies, no. Men, maybe. Maybe you ladies have. Wow, it's heavy. Everybody I read on this said they went way overboard. Okay, this is a mixture of myrrh, by the way, does that sound familiar? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold for a king, frankincense, incense, worship, myrrh. That's an odd one. That's what you use to embalm people. He's a king who will be worshiped after his death. Isn't that cool? Um, a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Why do they do this? The Jews did not um, embalm. The, the Egyptians would remove certain body organs, drain the blood, drain all the fluids. Jews treated the body with great dignity. A lot of the pagans would burn bodies. Jews bur buried bodies, okay? They would do this to take away the stench of a decaying body, okay? Old Testament says you will not let your holy ones see decay. Not at all. But here they are. They're going to embalm the body, not embalm, but present, preserve the body by doing this. The um, aloes and the myrrh would mix together and become almost a paste, okay, that would harden. Do you ever break a bone and have a cast? It almost is that, gets that hard with the bandages, okay? Um, they would tie the legs together, tie the hands together. Um, start with a big, long sheet. Imagine a sheet 13 feet long. Okay, got the picture? A big, long sheet. At one end, you put the person's feet, lay the body down, embalm him with all that stuff, not embalm him, but address the body with all those things, all that myrrh and aloes, wrap it in um, bandages like strips of linen, and then you fold the other half over him. How many have ever seen pictures of or seen the Shroud of Turin? Anybody? Very controversial. There was a, a replica of it in Santa Cruz. My wife and I went and saw it. Um, pretty amazing thing. They can't figure out how it was 
how the image got imprinted on there. They've tested it. It's not painted on there. It wasn't burned on there. They can't figure it out. Is it the burial cloth of Jesus? I don't know. You were hoping me. Yes. It, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Doesn't my faith, if it turns out it's a fake, my faith doesn't lose one centimeter of faith, right? Okay. Um, did Joseph and Nicodemus have to leave the Sanhedrin? We're not told. Did they lose financially by doing this? Well, they bought the stuff, the linen, the aloes. Did they end up getting shunned? We don't know. Wouldn't surprise me. They don't care. We believe in him. Let's go take his body down and bury it. It just so happens Joseph owns a garden nearby that's regularly tended to by a gardener. I'll tell you why I know that in a minute. And in there, that's where his tomb is. Usually they would find a big limestone side of a mountain and hollow it out. And it would be a small room that you could walk into. We'll talk more about that later. And shelves on each side to put more than one body. Um, okay. So they go and get the body. And with Nicodemus, we'll call him Nick, Nick at night. Remember Nick back in chapter three? Um, they've got the aloes and the myrrh. Verse 40, taking Jesus's body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. Okay. So the strips of linen, the shroud over it, and all that aloe and stuff, it's like a cocoon, if you will. I think when you could see it, I think you would see the outline of, yeah, that's where the body is. The head's over here. The feet are over here. But you can't see Jesus at all. There would also be a separate cloth over his face. We'll talk about that more in a second. Um, so they wrapped it. This was done in accordance with Jewish burial customs. End of verse 40. Do you see that? At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Okay, a couple things. There was a what? Garden. Hmm, Bible, Bible, garden, garden, garden of Eden. First time the word garden appears. What happened in the garden of Eden? It's where everything went wrong. It's the reason you have aches and pains, the reason you get sick, the reason you will die unless the rapture happens and Christ returns, you, um, you will be, you have your feelings hurt. The reason you were alienated from God all started with Adam and Eve and a sin in a garden. The first Adam, Adam means man, was we have Adam sitting there, right, Adam? The first Adam, okay, Jesus is called the second Adam. The first Adam had a test in a garden regarding a command from God regarding a tree. Remember we talked about this two weeks ago? First Adam, command from God, don't eat of that tree. You can eat all the other trees you want, the plants, but don't touch that tree. The day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Adam and Eve fail a test in a garden regarding a tree and a command from God. Centuries later, the second Adam, Jesus, is in a garden. Oh, you mean this one? No. I mean the garden of Gethsemane. His passion begins there and ends just before this garden. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sees the full weight of being separated from God, all the suffering, all the mocking, all the beating, all the bloody craziness that's going to occur. And he says to God, if there's any other way to do this, take this cup, the cup of your wrath against all sin away from me. 
but not my will, your will be done. If you remember nothing else about tonight, remember that when you pray. This is what I really hope will happen, God. Please, please, but not my will, your will be done. His will is always better than your will or mine, right? The more you read the Bible, the more you pray, the more you obey, the more closer you walk with, the closer you walk with him, the more your will becomes in line with his, not the other way around. You don't go, God, my will's over here. Come here, come here, do this. It's more, I'm going over there to his will. In a garden, the second Adam passed a test regarding a tree. He hangs on the tree and the command of God. Here's a garden again, where the plan of redemption is completed. It's finished. But until he rises, he paid for the sins of the world. But what about us? We're still going to die. His resurrection is about to become your resurrection and mine. Watch. So verse 41, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Why is that important, that detail? Because it's true, number one. Here's why else. Let's say a couple of ancestors of Joseph Arimathea were in there. One of them was high priest or a prophet. They'd go, oh, that's what happened. The bones of the other person. It's a clean tomb. No one's ever, he's got it all dug out. It's all ready. No one's ever been laid in there. It's Jesus's tomb, basically, right? Um, verse 42, because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Joseph and Nicodemus are running around like crazy people, getting the aloes together, getting the body down, rushing over to anoint the body. Why? Six o'clock, they have to stop. Sabbath, done, right? Not to mention, nobody ever mentions this, but, and maybe you know, Adam, the wouldn't they be unclean? Adam was a, 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 speaks Hebrew and was a, a missionary in, in Israel, right? Wouldn't they be unclean and, because they touched a dead body and not be able to celebrate the Passover? Okay, they'd have to go through a ritual of cleansing, yeah. And it was necessary, I guess you could say as well. Well, in any case, um, they're hurrying to anoint the body. We also know that because the women come two days from now to finish the job because they've talked to Joseph maybe and Nicodemus and, and they said, we did the best we could. We rushed the job though because it was getting late, right? So there, that's how chapter 19 ends. Now I'm just looking at notes. Psalm 1610, you will not let your holy one see decay. He's dead but he's going to rise again. It's interesting when you look up the resurrection in the Bible, you will find who raised Jesus from the dead. You've heard me talk about this, some of you before. There's a lot of scriptures that say God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. No problem there. There is at least one verse in Romans that says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. There's several verses where Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days, I'll do it. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up. Oh, is that a contradiction? No. Who raised Jesus from the dead? God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Anyway, threw that in at no extra charge. Um, 
the Sabbath is coming. They've got to hurry. Jesus had predicted, just like Jonah, three days in the belly of the earth, so shall the Son of Man be. Now, if you're thinking, you might say, wait, 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 wait. It's Friday night? Yeah, it's a little before six, they get him in the tomb. So let's say 5.30. He's in the, in the tomb for part of Friday. Let's call it that half hour. He's in the tomb for all day Saturday, 24 hours. You with me? And he's in the tomb just a teeny bit of Sunday morning. Well, that isn't three days. To a Jew, it is. Jews reckoned even a portion of a day as a day. Okay? They weren't sticklers for the has to be 24 hours. It's a part of Friday, all of Saturday, part a very small part of Sunday. Um, okay, yeah, we already talked about that and that. Uh, yes, only John mentions that the garden was owned by Joseph. Uh, uh, sorry, that it was a garden. Matthew 27 says that Joseph owned the garden. Uh, which anticipates the gardener. Remember, Mary thinks she's seeing the gardener when she sees Jesus. We already talked about that. Let's talk about the tomb. Small room, hewn out of, uh, cut out of limestone. Extremely expensive and time-consuming to do it. Joseph's got money, no problem. Normally, the doorway, if you're picturing a standard eight, you know, six by six foot, eight inch doorway, wrong. The doorway would be very low. I love this, by the way, three feet, three and a half feet tall, little round doorway, maybe, maybe square. Why is that important? Because you don't go waltzing in the tomb. You kind of have to bow down to get in there. I've often said uh, in an analogy, somebody that comes to Christ doesn't waltz in. They come on their hands and knees repentant, humble, begging for mercy and love. Now, listen, Jesus doesn't put his foot on your neck. He says, get up, my child. I love you. And he hugs you, right? But we come humbly. Don't expect when you die to, for bells to ring and everybody goes, he's here, she's here. I'm coming through that low door myself. I don't deserve to be here. It's all Jesus. Let's keep rolling, shall we? Yes, we were hoping you'd say that. Um, do we want to go there, what we were discussing on the break? No, I think we'll skip it for now. Um, oh, last thing. Most of the time, when there is a biography, it ends here. Let's close in prayer. No, no, this isn't the end of the story. Biographies end when the dude dies. He was born in 1837. He died in 1904. End of the story. Not here. There's a whole, there's more to the story. It's beautiful. In a normal death, they put the body in there. A couple of years would go by. Standard procedure is gross job. Family members have to go in there and collect the bones. Because by then, the organs, the flesh, everything's gone. It's just bones. I don't mean to gross you out, but this is standard procedure. They would get a little box called an ossuary. You ever heard that term? And they would take the bones, imagine that job, you do it, I'm not going in there, and put the bones in an ossuary. By the way, by doing that, you could put 20 people in that tomb now that maybe would only hold four, four bodies or something. I'm making that up, but you know what I'm saying. Why are you mentioning the ossuary? 
They don't need one for Jesus. But guess who needed one? Jesus's half-brother, James. What are you talking about? Not long ago, they found in the Holy Land an ossuary, a box with bones decayed. On the ossuary, in Hebrew, sorry, in Aramaic, it says, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Most scholars think it's Jesus's brother's ossuary. Bones. Now, why is that a big deal? Proof that this, this is not once upon a time there was a guy, it really happened. Number two, ossuaries usually would say James, son of Joseph. Period. Why mention the brother? Unless the brother, Yeshua, Jesus, is so well known, make sure you put James, son of Joseph, brother of Yeshua. Whew. Pretty cool. Okay. Most of you are asleep, but I thought it was cool. Let's keep rolling, shall we? Chapter 20. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. John does not mention that the Jews are the only ones who remember the resurrection at this point. The Jews, the, the leaders who hate him, they go to Pilate and say, listen, thanks for crucifying him. We appreciate it. He's dead as a doornail. We really, we love that about it. But he did say, that liar did say, he's going to rise from the dead. So I know this is weird, Pontius Pilate, but could you please post some guards at the tomb and put the Roman seal on the tomb? Roman seal was wax with an inscription in it that basically in paraphrased English of 2022 would say, you mess with this, you're in big trouble. Don't you touch this grave. Sealed with a Roman seal, Roman guards. Roman guards, if you fell asleep on guard, the penalty was death. So the Jews go, well, we got it covered, boys. Let's go to sleep. Okay. John does not mention any of this. Matthew mentions that when the angel, Jesus has already risen. We'll get to that. When the angel comes and rolls away the stone and sits on the stone. I, I just love that somehow. Like, here I am, dude. That the guards shake with fear and become like dead men. Translation, I think they just passed out. They just fainted. Okay. None of that is in the gospel of John because it's already been in Matthew and he knows that. He's just telling you what he remembers. Um, chapter 20, little introduction. People have always, mankind has always feared death. We don't talk about it much. We don't like to think about it, especially not my own. His, hers, whatever. But my own, everybody fears it. All cultures, all nations, it's always been a feared thing, okay? And so this is a very unusual thing that Christianity takes the fear out of death. In the book of Job 14, 14, the question is asked, if a man die, shall he live again? So the Hindus invented reincarnation. You just keep coming back again and again and again. And if you lived a little better life, maybe you'll be a prince or a 
princess or a queen. You lived a horrible life. You could come back as a mosquito or a rat or a cow, which is why in a lot of India, they don't eat meat. You know why? Because that cow could be Uncle Harry who died five years ago. You don't know. Christianity is the only religion that answers the sin question. And the answer is not live up. It's not D-O, do, do these things and you'll get heaven. It's done, D-O-N-E. It is finished. He finished it, Jesus. In faith, we believe in him. And in so doing, we get eternal life and a resurrection. Oh, good. So I don't have to behave or repent. Oh, no, you do. Oh, so that's what gets my salvation done. No. We don't repent to get salvation. We already have it. We repent in gratitude for the unbelievable gift we've been given. I'm trying to introduce resurrection. Can you get it? Can you, can you sense that? Okay, keep your finger here. No, we want the resurrection. It'll probably be next week. I want you to see 1 Corinthians 15. Don't mean to burst your bubble. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. That is the chapter in the Bible on resurrection. There are other places it's mentioned, but 1 Corinthians 15, more than any other chapter, is the resurrection chapter. It also mentions when Christ returns. I want you to see, I'm trying to answer this question. I like the miracles of Jesus. Okay, good. I like the teaching of Jesus. That's cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the death of Jesus on the cross. That's it, boy. The cross is the symbol of Christianity, right? Yes, it is. How important is the resurrection? Is it just kind of a epilogue to the story? I'm going to show you that it's the most important element of the whole story. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Now, Paul's going to entertain the hypothetical question, what if he lived the perfect life that you were supposed to live? He never sinned. He did all the miracles. He was the son of God. He died on the cross, period. What if there's no, what if he didn't rise? Verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, and in fact the dead are not raised, then in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised either. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. He's saying, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, throw away the Bible and Christianity and you're on your own, dude. Dude, I added, dude. Um, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have already died who believe, they're lost. They're going to rot in the ground. The resurrection isn't one little part. It's everything. That's what I want you to see. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, verse 20. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The point he's going to make in this chapter is this. Don't look at the resurrection in the third person and go, good for him. Look at it and go, good for me. This is your future, folks. Walter Martin said, every human being is going to die of their last disease or their last accident. Right? No exceptions. Unless Christ returns. I get that. Otherwise, everybody dies. The death rate is one per person, right? Look it up. What's your point? 
It's not final for believers. There's a day coming when, if you're in the grave, when Christ returns, you're going to come out of that grave. Mind-blowing. Uh, that's the hope of the believer, isn't it? John omits the earthquake, the curtain torn, the angel rolling away the stone, all that stuff. He wants to just get to it, the resurrection. Last thing, and then we'll dive in for a few minutes, not many. In each appearance of Jesus, and we'll see this more next week, I want you to notice the human emotion and then their condition transformed. The Mary Magdalene is the first one. We're going to talk a lot about women next week and how amazing it is that Mary Magdalene is the first one to see him. What's Mary's emotion? Grief. Crying so hard she can barely see. And then what about the disciples? Fear. They're in the upper room hiding. What about Thomas? Weird case later in this chapter. Thomas is doubting Thomas. What's his reaction? Faith. Anyway, let's at least start in and then we'll stop. Chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, the Jews call it the first day, meaning what day? Sunday. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance, rolled away. What stone? Remember the little entrance I talked about, the little three or four foot? Okay, there would usually be a channel going up from there that you could put a, a stone in, a round stone. Picture a large stone that looks like a quarter, but it's not a quarter, it's huge. And it would roll downhill and sit there, very heavy. One man could usually not roll it away. It would take several people to roll the stone away and put it back up so you could go in. So that grave robbers, people wanting to mess with dead bodies, weird people, keeps everyone out, okay? Keeps the stench out of dead bodies from the garden as well, right? The stone is rolled away. Good old Mary Magdalene. You see in popular movies about Jesus, she was a prostitute. Nowhere in the Bible. He cast seven demons out of her. So she had some issues. Nowhere does it say she was a prostitute. Of all people, where's Peter? Where's John? Where's James? Andrew? Philip? There's Mary Magdalene. First thing in the morning. Is it a priority for her? I'll go by in the afternoon after the football game's over. She's there. First thing in the morning. Before dark. While it was still dark. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. She sees the stones been removed. So knowing the culture, she thinks grave robbers, darn it, somebody took the body. This is terrible. The guards are passed out or already gone to tell, you're not going to believe what happened kind of thing. So Mary Magdalene, first day of the week. Why is that important? Because the Jews worship on the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath, 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 for centuries. Christianity begins with a bunch of Jews who believe in the Messiah. And guess what? They start worshiping on the first day of the week, Sunday. Uh, several places, uh, Acts 2, Acts 20, 1 Corinthians 16, they meet on the first day of the week. Jesus is going to appear to a bunch of people on two successive Sundays, 
first day of the week. New beginning, first day. Um, astounding that they would change that holy day from the Sabbath, Saturday, to, or you know, Friday night to Saturday night, to Sunday. Um, well, I'm going to skip that for now and that because we're out of time. So you say, but come on, he didn't rise. He did. Mary just hasn't seen him yet, and we're out of time. <laughs> Let's uh, hold it off for next week, and we will meet same time, same channel. Uh, thank you for the, those of you that are here on Zoom. Those of you who are here in person, after I pray, and I'm going to pray right now real quickly, make sure you do the most important thing, which is say hello to someone that you don't know. Very important. The rest of you, God bless you. We'll see you next Tuesday. Uh, if you don't get the notes, email Email me and tell me you want to be on that list, and I'll email you the notes that I taught from tonight. Let's close with prayer, and we'll get out of here. Thank you, Father. What a beautiful, awesome story this is, that you, your son Jesus, loved us enough to die in our place, take our punishment, so that we could be sons and daughters of, of you because of that, because of the faith that you give us. May that love that you showed to us that we didn't deserve, that we didn't earn, motivate us to love you even more, to love others around us, to obey you, Father. In the power of your spirit, help us to do so. Thank you that the resurrection isn't just Jesus's, it's ours individually. That's our future, and it's glorious. Like the thief on the cross, on the cross we'll be with you in paradise one day, God. All the glory goes to you, Father, and your son, Jesus. Bless these truths to our hearts and minds. May they change the way we live. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. And those of you on Zoom, God bless. Thanks for being here.